You may think having a popular bill at the Colorado Capitol without any opponents, with bipartisan support, would mean pretty easy sailing through the legislature. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So I've had to have some tough conversations with the members to say, you know, I think your bill's a great idea, but it just doesn't have support from the caucus and we're not going to be able to find the money for it. Not find the money because many new laws are going to cost something. And everyone in the legislature knows there is only so much money to go around. This building is about relationships. Who do you trust? Who can you, like, convince that they need to support you? And convince them to spend money on your bill even though it's competing with other policies for a very limited pot of funding. A lot of jockeying around, is there money for my bill? This turns lawmakers into lobbyists in a way, pitching each other not just on the value of their ideas, but the value in dollars of those ideas. I'm lobbied more than I was previously coming from the House where there's a much bigger majority. It's much narrower here. I mean, that's why on the floor you see people constantly roaming around to each other's desks because we're asking for support on our bills and for our funding. Call it the funding dance. It's just one of the many arts to getting a bill passed through the Colorado legislature. This is Purplish a show about Colorado politics and policy, and for this season, the 2023 legislative session. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Megan Verlee. This season, this session is almost over, and things are moving so fast at the Capitol, we can't really safely talk about any one policy that is still in play. So on this episode of Purplish, we will talk about something that is in the background of most policy debates, money. State lawmakers introduced 614 bills this session, at least as of last night, and I'm really hoping they don't introduce any more right now. A lot of them, probably most of them, they come with a cost. And that could just be a couple hundred thousand dollars, or it could be tens of millions of dollars. But because the state has to end up with a balanced budget, every one of those dollars has to be accounted for. To understand how lawmakers make these decisions, we're going to pull back the curtain a bit here and dive into the dreaded, maybe not so dreaded, fiscal note. This little document that outlines how much a bill will actually cost if it becomes law and has so much to do with its fate. And that fiscal note not only has a major impact on whether a measure ultimately passes, but also plays a key role in how the legislation would eventually be implemented. There can be a lot of drama and twists and turns when it comes to how things are funded. And in this episode, we are going to take you behind the scenes. So we'll dive into some pretty dramatic changes that can happen to these fiscal notes and all the jockeying that also happens in these final weeks of the legislative session. The governor just recently signed the state budget for next year, and tucked into that massive document are hundreds of pages of money for all the new spending lawmakers are approving, and one pot of money that they still get to divvy up right till the final minutes. And winning the fight for that money is, I think, a legislative skill all its own. Historically, it takes lobbying, persuasion, and sometimes some creative accounting. In recent sessions, Democrats have hit on a new and controversial way of divvying up that money. It's one that might keep things running a bit more smoothly inside the building, but it is garnering plenty of criticism.
Let's start this off at the beginning with the big question, how do you even figure out what something that isn't law yet might cost? It's critical for lawmakers to know how much money they might be spending. Colorado is constitutionally required to have a balanced budget. I can't even balance my household budget. I I am amazed that they hit that mark every year. It is amazing, yeah. (laughs) And it starts with some of the first people who actually see a policy When a lawmaker is in the process of dreaming it up, even before there's a real bill for it, the fiscal analysts. We're the nonpartisan staff that assess all the pieces of legislation that come through the General Assembly each year. That's Bill Zepernick. His title is Fiscal Notes Manager. He spent 10 years as a fiscal analyst, and now he oversees about a dozen analysts and then also five economists. And these are the people that decide how much a bill costs. Reading fiscal notes, which they are online kind of attached to the bill, can be really interesting because I know when I'm trying to understand what a proposal does, the language of the bill might not be so helpful. I always go first to the fiscal note. They're in plain English. They make clear what's at stake. They don't have spin because they're written by nonpartisan staff. They're really useful documents. I know. It took me a few years of reporting before I realized, wait, I should go to the fiscal note as soon as I can because, yes, I think it does give you a good sense of what a policy would do and some of the ramifications. Totally. And Zabernick said even though the analysts are doing their own research and they do have to back up their figures, they also have to make assumptions. So, for instance, take a bill that would increase a criminal penalty. Hmm. How many more people might commit this crime? How many people could potentially be incarcerated? Another example, a bill that creates a new regulation. What does it cost to implement this regulation? Zepernick said it can be complicated. For certain bills, it could take a few weeks to put one of these pages of analysis together. We take information wherever we could get it. Our most common source that we, is the state agencies that we talk to about the legislation since they're the ones who are going to be ultimately implementing the bill. But yeah, we'll look at other states, um, academic studies, you know, other research that we'll do. It's funny, I remember talking to a nonpartisan staffer a long time ago, and she said that this job makes her think of that scene in the movie Titanic, where they go kind of below decks and you see all the guys running the boilers down in the belly of the ship, and they're the people making everything go while all that glitzy stuff happens up above. She's like, we're those guys. We make the legislature go, but nobody really pays attention to us kind of feeding the machines. It's the lawmakers up above that get the attention, but we're pushing it all forward. Yeah, I think that's true. Hopefully it doesn't end as, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully nobody drowns at the end of the legislature. (laughs) Hopefully it's a happier ending scene, but I think that's a pretty good analogy. Zepernick said one of the hardest things for staff is when they have to deliver the very bad news to a lawmaker that this person's bill costs a lot of money. I think it's more of an issue when it's a surprise to them that it's <laughs> that there's a large cost on a bill. Um, and so we always try to talk to them early in the process. Throughout this whole backdrop, we have to keep in mind that these fiscal analysts can be getting a lot of pressure. It's very common <laughs> for us to kind of be caught in the middle of legislators wanting to lower the cost of their bill, stakeholders wanting to lower the cost, and state agencies who want those resources to be able to implement a bill. 
So we're kind of getting it from all sides. <laughs> and of course, because money is finite at the legislature, unlike Congress, a big fiscal note is a big hurdle for any bill to get over and get passed, no matter how much people like the underlying policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and Zepernick said, even though they're making these assumptions, sometimes there's just not good information for how things could look if a bill becomes law. And that leads us to what we'll be talking about for the rest of this episode, which is how lawmakers sometimes try to get around footing that bill and how their colleagues decide what to spend their money on. We've talked about how fiscal analysts play a huge policy role behind the scenes, providing this key information that lawmakers need to decide on a bill. But fiscal notes aren't drafted and set in stone, right? They can change as a bill moves through the legislature. Yeah, this is really where the heart of the process kind of begins with trying to pin down a figure. It isn't straightforward, and it's not uncommon for a measure to go through a whole bunch of fiscal notes. We're actually just talking about that on our our fiscal note slack that we have, a very exciting place. But I think someone said they had a fiscal note that got revised nine times through the process, which is pretty high. Usually it's two or three times as the bill gets amended and makes stops in different committees. I have got to be the biggest nerd because it just cracks me up, the thought that somewhere out there there is a fiscal note slack channel where people are (laughs) comparing their fiscal note revisions. I know. You know, Zippernick talked about this as something that happens as a bill gets amended in committee, which makes sense. You take things out of a bill, you put things in, the costs are going to change. But nine times, a bill does not tend to go through nine committees. There must be other points where it's getting changed. Right. Well, he mentioned earlier, usually if you're supporting a bill and either you're a lawmaker or advocate, you want the cost to be lower just to have an easier chance of passing. Of course. And I have an example of how a fiscal note changed this year. You always have an example. I love it. You have an anecdote for every topic. That's right. So lawmakers just passed a bill that changes the standard for filing a workplace harassment claim. Hmm. So it updates the state's laws and it eliminates this requirement that the harassment has to be severe or pervasive. And there's other provisions in there as well. So the fiscal analyst came up with the cost estimate. The price tag for this when the bill was introduced was two and a half million dollars. Benta, you covered the policy side of it. I don't think we even got into the money in your story. I have to admit, I don't understand. Why would this cost the state money? Like, this is a policy that affects businesses, not the state. One of the big reasons was for enforcement. So if you make the law easier for people to file claims, the idea is there will be more legal cases. And each legal case costs money as it goes through the courts. Right. And this fiscal note assumes a certain percentage increase in case filings. And that's based on broadening this definition of harassment. Okay, so two and a half million dollars more kind of court work if this law goes into effect, at least in the original fiscal note. But since this is illustrating how fiscal notes can change, I assume $2.5 million wasn't the final price tag. Right, because supporters felt this analysis overestimated how many new cases would result from this hmm. loosening the standard and loosening this definition of harassment. This bill wasn't uniformly supported. That wasn't necessarily just about the fiscal note, but those costs tie into the impact and backers disagreed with this. And this real sticking point in the bill was whether it would lead to frivolous lawsuits. And that was a concern we'd heard from the business community. 
okay, and so two and a half million dollars in new court costs, that might be kind of an indicator that too many companies are going to get sued and maybe potentially weaken the, the sponsor's arguments. But as you said earlier, fiscal notes aren't reality. They're kind of conjecture. They're trying to tell the future of what a policy might do. And it sounds like supporters did not agree with this vision of the future of their bill. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth noting that it's not unusual for people to try to change a fiscal note. Hmm. That doesn't mean the fiscal note will change, but the analysts take lots of meetings, they'll hear people out, they'll research it for themselves. People will give us other information about, hey, what about, I think in that case it was, this is what happened in California and why the numbers are different. And so we'll look at, well, how's the California law different than this law? How can we reconcile these differences and come up with a reasonable estimate? And in this case, it sounds like whatever the supporters of the bill were presenting to the fiscal analyst changed their mind. Right. It, it dropped by a little more than half. That's a big deal. Yeah. And so supporters said, look, broadening how we define harassment, they thought would eventually lead to more companies following the law, creating a better workplace culture. And Zepernick mentioned this, but supporters looked at a similar law in California. And after doing additional research, the fiscal analysts agreed that the cost should be lower. Is this a common thing that is happening in the background at the legislature? I, I have to admit, I when I see a new fiscal note or a revised fiscal note, I've been assuming those come from the committee process, but it sounds like a lot of them aren't. Amendments are a big part of it, but not the whole picture. And hmm. I did find, and this is a big dramatic shift, but I found a bill this session that went from a $20 million price tag down to $18,000. That, that is crazy. <laughs> that is that is that's not like cutting two and a half million in half. How do you even make that happen? <laughs> yeah. So this is a bill that has to do with the Department of Corrections. And it would regulate a certain type of restraint. This is called a four-point restraint. And that's because it's a restraint that goes on each of your limbs. So four limbs. And where would the $20 million come in? Like DOC would have to buy new equipment or train their staff? Like what? where was the cost? Yeah, that's pretty much it. According to the fiscal note, increased medical staff, more correction workers who could help with the movement of inmates, the bill stipulated that the restraints had to be made of certain materials, so there'd be a cost for that. Well, people have definitely died while being restrained in custody, so I can see why supporters of this really see this as a very important policy. But $20 million is a lot of money when you're down at the legislature. It's a lot of money to anybody. That kind of price tag, I would think, could doom a bill. On the record here, I think it's pretty fair to say that this bill would not pass the legislature to the tune of $20 million. It's mm. just that's too high a price tag. I talked to the sponsor, Democratic Representative Judy Amabile. She saw this $20 million cost and she was absolutely shocked. And you know how Zepernick told us that's always a tough conversation when you have to tell the lawmaker. <laughs> oh, she like, was the one in the tough conversation. I don't know, but she could have been. You know, this may be an example of that. But this isn't the end of the story. We kept meeting with Department of Corrections, and then one of the fiscal analysts said, hey, look, they're applying for a certification, and then we'll have to do these things that are in your bill anyway. So we were like, okay, well, if you're applying for that, you're going to have to do these things anyway. You must have budget for that. And so at the end of the day, they were like, okay, we can do it. So basically, she found out that they already had money for the thing that they were saying maybe they didn't have money for? 
Yeah, they did change the bill, but some of the core pieces of the bill, Department of Corrections has to put into effect in a certain number of years. So this was one where Department of Corrections didn't like the introduced bill. And I think supporters of the bill felt like Department of Corrections was kind of dragging their feet about the cost. But the fiscal analyst kind of came up with this solution. So it essentially canceled out that whole $20 million fiscal note. This is so interesting because it's such an integral part of the legislative process, but not one that happens on the calendar, not one that's scheduled for a public hearing, but it's clearly shaping what actually happens by the end of a legislative session. So what we've learned here is that for a lawmaker who's running a bill, there is a cost management side to the process, working in an ongoing way with their fiscal analyst to try to get the cost of their bill in line with what their colleagues might be willing to spend on it. But that brings us to the flip side of this dynamic, which is the rest of the legislature. And with hundreds of bills to consider each session, limited dollars, how do they as a whole decide what they're going to put that money into? Let me just give a brief overview about how much money we're talking about here. So we've said the state has a balanced budget. The budget this year is close to $40 billion, with a B, dollars. Ooh. But a good chunk of that money is federal money that's passed through the state for programs and other money that's already obligated. So for the legislation, everything we've been talking about this session, all the bills that are introduced that are moving through the Capitol, lawmakers set aside $30 million in the budget to fund this legislation. So that's why when I said earlier, if Amabile's Department of Corrections measure had been $20 million, that wasn't going to pass when the total amount for all legislative bills is $30 million. That really puts things in perspective because $30 million sounds like a lot of money, but the way you describe it, it actually feels like a kind of small pot. And I have to bet that if you added up all the fiscal notes for all the bills out there this session, that'd be a lot more than $30 million. And what's kind of interesting is the governor proposes a budget, but then lawmakers write their own budget as kind of the starting point, and the legislature passes a budget. But in the governor's original budget request, he had proposed only $15 million <laughs> for all the legislative priorities. <laughs> so lawmakers were like, no, we're going to double that figure. That makes so much sense. The governor doesn't think the legislature needs to do anything that he hasn't thought of. The legislature has their own ideas, of course. And I have to say, Benta, we are about to get to the part of the episode that I am really excited about. Wait, so you weren't excited about the first part? No, Bill no. Zephernick? Come on. No, Bill is awesome. I loved the first part. But I like this part because I think you're actually going to answer a question that I have had for an embarrassingly long time as the person who edits legislative coverage, which I have never actually gotten my act together to figure out until now. What's that? I'm curious. I'm very curious. <laughs> well, it's how does the legislature end up with a balanced budget when you have dozens, like literally hundreds of bills flying kind of willy-nilly through the Capitol? I mean, right now in the final days, they are having committee hearings on the floor. They are working overnights and weekends. Like, I, I've never understood really how they keep track of all the money that they're approving to end up on the final day with only enough spent to match the budget, that they don't wake up the day after the legislative session and go, oh my God, we spent $100 million more than we have money for. So I think you are now going to help me understand this, and I'm really excited for it. 
I don't know how excited you need to be because it's pretty simple. Um, you <laughs> Somehow know, that makes me feel worse. Yeah, no. The biggest thing is they just wait. A bill with a fiscal note can get its first hearing. Uh, let's say it's dealing with transportation or education or health. You know, it can go to that appropriate committee and has a public hearing, hmm. but then it doesn't go any farther in the process. You see a whole lot of bills early in the session that have a lot of excitement and joy, and then they hit the appropriations committee and they stop. That doesn't mean they permanently stop, but this is this waiting period. And that was Senator Jeff Bridges. He's the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. And that committee's whole job is to say, yes, there is money for this bill, or no, there is not money for this bill. But they really can't do that until the budget is set. And that happens in the second half of the session. The reason for that is that we just, we don't know how much we're gonna have. And not knowing how much we have changes what it is that moves forward and, and doesn't move forward. And so we just have to hold. I see my problem here. I have to admit that I have tended to ignore the Appropriations Committee because, A, they meet really early in the morning and nobody wants to deal with that. And B, like, they don't have public testimony. It's not a moment where you learn about the policy. But what I realize I've been ignoring is that this is the crucial step where they say, yes, if this passes, we can pay for it. Or no, you really can't go forward because nobody wants to put $100 million into your idea. Well, I don't think you should feel too bad because I talked to Republican Senator Bob Gardner and I think he said he was in one of his first couple years at the legislature. He's been there for a really long time, House and now Senate. And he had this bill that was super popular, got through committee and he was so excited to pass it. And then appropriations, it was a $10 million price tag and they just thwarted his ambition there. He really had no clue that was going to get killed in that committee. <laughs> so, I do feel like I'm in better company than if, I, yeah. if freshman lawmakers have the same uh, mistakes I do. But for this year, I talked to Democratic Senator Sonia Hawkes-Lewis. She was one of the sponsors of Senate Bill Number 5. Mm. So this bill was introduced on the first day of session back in January. The main sponsors are from both parties. The goal is to recruit more wildland firefighters. Lots of support for this but it took three months to just get through appropriations. It has a nickname called Red Rover, where you have bills that sit in a probes until we can sit down and figure out how much money do we have in the budget. So Red Rover, Red Rover, send Senate Bill 5 on over. (laughs) Right, to be clear, she wasn't ever fearful that this bill would be in jeopardy of not being funded. So just to make sure I got this correctly, because clearly it took me a decade to figure this out or to learn how this works, for the first two and a half, three months of session, lawmakers are introducing bills, they're debating bills, maybe some of them, if they don't really have a fiscal note or a price tag, are going all the way through the process. But somewhere in the background this whole time, someone has this running tally going of what everything costs. And once they know how those costs match up to how much money they have to spend, then they start making decisions about what's actually going to pass. So, Bent, I have another question here. Sure. Yep. As I try to learn about this process that I really should already understand. How do they do that? I mean... Does the Appropriations Committee sort of have endless power to say, yes, you, not you? I mean, members of that committee do have a lot of power, typically the members of the Joint Budget Committee, which crafts the budget. But Democrats, they're in the majority. They have come up with a system to sort that out. This is kind of a sorting process even before lawmakers take a public vote on the budget. So this is done behind the scenes and it's called quadratic voting. 
That sounds extremely mathy, like something you might get in like an AP calculus test or something. It does. Yeah. Don't give me that question. And I, I do want to note that KUNC's Scott Franz first reported on this system last year. Basically, Democratic leaders send out this survey to their members and it lists all the bills that are going to cost money. Each of the lawmakers essentially votes on what they like best and how much they like it. So you have like a certain number of points you can divvy up between things. And this gives the caucus a list of priorities when it comes to deciding what they have money for, what they don't have money for. That feels uh, sketchy. To me, I mean, first off, it's only Democrats, you're saying, who get to be part of this. They're cutting out Republicans entirely from spending decisions. And if they're doing this in caucus meetings, that's not transparent. That's not happening on the floor or in a committee. True. I mean, Democrats say, hey, we did invite Republicans to participate. They didn't want to. At least that's what they said in the Senate. Oh. And there's other informal ways. But yeah, this got pushback primarily for the reason that it's not transparent. Lawmakers are supposed to vote on bills in public. Of course, we know covering the Capitol so much happens behind the scenes and in negotiations, even before public hearings on policies. Lawmakers are lobbied heavily before and may have already decided how they're going to vote in a lot of cases. But for this quadratic voting it kind of looks like they're making decisions secretly and keeping it very hidden because they're actually voting. So this year, Democrats agreed to make the results public hmm. upon request, not information about how an individual member voted, but kind of how well a policy fared on this list. So what was ranked highest and that type of thing. Um, but recently on the Senate floor, Republican Barbara Kirkmeyer, who serves on the Budget Committee, tried to amend Colorado's open records law to force Democrats to reveal more about these votes. Ooh. Your constituents have the right to know how you are voting. When you are making decisions based on that secret voting, whether it's one of you or 23 of you, when you are setting priorities in your caucus, when essentially you are killing bills, deciding what goes in the budget, what gets funded, what doesn't. When you are voting and making those types of decisions, you are in an open meeting, subject to the Colorado Opens Record Act. The sunshine laws apply. How do Democrats defend this? I mean, I can see why they would want the freedom to set priorities without hurting each other's feelings and getting into big debates about it. But doing it this way and keeping it off the books, I think Kirkmeyer makes a really strong point that this isn't how the system worked before quadratic voting. Yeah. And I asked Senator Jeff Bridges that question. He's the appropriations chair. He said, look, this is a tool. It's an important data point, but it's distinctly different from a public vote. And so knowing where the caucus is on some of these bills really helps make those make some determinations in that competitive environment for the limited funding that we have. Um, but it is not determinative. It's not the final answer. And he also says he thinks the process is actually more fair. Really? Yeah, because it gives at least the majority of you know, members, Democrats, some say or more of a say in what gets funded. I've been in the legislature for six years now, and my memory of my first couple of years uh, is that the budget was largely decided by the budget committee and leadership. And there wasn't really much of a process, uh, much of a way for individual members to have their thoughts on which bill should be prioritized and which bill should maybe um, not be prioritized. And what we've tried to do 
this year and, and started in years past, but really I think leaned into this year, is give every member of the legislature much more of a voice in that process and in terms of what are the bills that we're going to fund with the limited funds that we have and which bills maybe aren't going to make it. He said every member of the legislature, but you said that Republicans aren't participating in this process. I, I realize they are the minority and in the House they're a very small minority. But what are they saying about funding and, and how they approach funding questions? Well, the Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen said it's much more informal. Certainly they're talking to each other and trying to figure out what people agree on and working across the aisle where they can. But unsurprisingly, his belief is that Democrats are too interested in running bills that spend all the money that's available. Kind of that $30 million for many of the 100 members of the General Assembly, 65 in the House, 35 in the Senate, that's the shiny object that they're, oh my, there's $30 million. My, my response is, yeah, but there's a $40 billion budget. Let's focus on the bigger aspects and, and stop running around trying to get a, a, a million here or five million here or 10 million there for a new program. Let's actually focus on reprioritizing the, the bigger pool of cash. So Lundeen has put a lot of efforts in trying to push for more education funding. And he'd actually like to flip the whole way the legislature handles funding for the actual budget and new laws. Flip it? How so? Well, he thinks the first thing the legislature should do is pass the School Finance Act, putting as much money as possible into schools, fully funding schools. And only after that... Then worry about the rest of the budget, how to divide up what's left for all these bills moving through the statehouse. That sounds very noble in a way to focus on the big picture all the time. It also, I have to say, sounds pretty unrealistic. I mean, lawmakers come to the Capitol to do lots of stuff to create programs they think will help people or to tweak regulations or to, to change criminal laws. All this stuff that you've talked about in this conversation. And like you said... Those things all come with price tags. So, of course, this little $30 million or whatever discretionary money is going to be top of mind because, as you've been saying, like, that's how everything else gets done. Yeah. And can I just say it's weird that it's like, oh, that little $30 million. Yeah. We're like. <laughs> that says a lot about the it, world we live in yeah. politics coverage wise. <laughs> True. Compared to $40 billion, yes, it, it is a smaller pot of money. But. I don't have any indication that the state is about to change the order in terms of how they do budgeting. But it was a philosophical point Lundin brought up on the floor, and he wanted to have that discussion. Makes sense. So to sum up, as we record this episode, just a few blocks away at the Capitol, lawmakers are engaged in this huge rush to pass the final bills, wrangle over the last policies, and yet behind it all, I'm picturing this sort of adding machine clicking away, tallying all the money being approved, making sure the dollars and cents attached to those ideas all add up and don't go over. Yep, and that all begins with the fiscal note process and that painstaking research that tries to quantify how much an idea could actually end up costing the state. As you described, that fiscal note's a kind of a living document, something that gets argued over, updated, even worked around. And at the same time, lawmakers are trying to individually convince their colleagues to support the money they want to spend on their legislation. Each chamber of the legislature as a group has to decide what policies are worth limited funds. 
In recent years, with Democrats in control, the tool for that has been something called quadratic voting, sort of a secret ballot where lawmakers can rank the things they think should be prioritized for funding. Supporters of this approach argue it gives more of the legislature a say in funding decisions and, in a way, formalizes what used to happen informally. But this does have critics who say, look, it lets lawmakers escape transparency and accountability as they make hard choices about which policies to advance. So as the session wraps up, and we, I mean, you, Benta, and Andy, who is off at the Capitol right now, cover what finally passes, what falls by the wayside. It's important to remember, it's not always about policy. It's often about dollars. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Brooklyn with my editor, Megan Verlee. This episode was produced by Shane Rumsey. We'll be back in your podcast feed next week. So if you're not already a subscriber, be sure to sign up so you don't miss it. We'll be wrapping up the legislature. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News.